This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A businessman named James Drury returned from a work trip last month. He was on the A-line from Denver International Airport when the train broke down. Drury and more than 200 other passengers on two separate trains were stranded. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reached out to him halfway through the ordeal. It's two hours. It's a long time. What if you have to go to the bathroom or something like that? Well... There are people going to the bathroom, but they're going in between the train cars or they're going to the back of the train and going off the train from what I've heard. Huh. What? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what to say to that. They ended up being stuck for more than three hours. And this is not the first time the A-line has malfunctioned. This time, though, RTD insists the private company that operates the train, Denver Transit Partners, shoulders some of the blame. DTP executives faced a volley of questions from the RTD board Tuesday night, and CPR's Nathaniel Miner was there. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Ryan. So remind me quickly what the relationship is between RTD and this company. So short version is that RTD promised it would build the A-line some 15 years ago. You may remember the Fast Tracks vote, uh, but then it ran short of money. So instead, RTD now pays a private company, Denver Transit Partners, to do that. The A-line says RTD all over it, but really it's operated by this private company. Okay. And what happened at last night's meeting? So uh, Denver Transit Partners executives came and took their lumps. They kind of knew what they were getting into here. Uh, The A-line has had its fair share of troubles, yes, but this one was really big and really visible. So the RTD board members were very inclined to sort of bring another party in to help them shoulder the blame. And the board chair, Doug Tisdale, he came out swinging. You have come here tonight and you have fallen on your sword. Uh, It is obviously appropriate for you to fall on your sword. It is also necessary for you in a public forum to fall on your sword. Uh, That doesn't fix the problem. Did he say what the problem was? He did. The biggest, biggest part of it is the communication factor. Yeah, so passengers on the train especially, um, I talked to a few of them, and a lot of them um, said this and elsewhere that they just didn't know what was happening. They were stuck there for hours on end, and they were getting very little information. Um, They did commend RTD itself for uh, reaching out to passengers via Twitter. Uh, So a lot of people were were, were complaining that they didn't know what was going on. They weren't hearing anything from the, say, the conductor or the engineer of the train. They would get dribs and drabs of information from RTD's Twitter feed. And the board just was very, very unhappy with this. They're saying, Denver Transit Partners, this is your responsibility to communicate with the people on your train. Um, Get better. And so Denver Transit Partners in return says, yes, okay, we're going to hire some customer service people. We take this seriously. Um, And they seem to sort of get the point. Did we learn anything about why this train broke down in the first place? Yeah, so that came out. Uh, Initially, Denver Transit Partners thought the problem was with the train itself. Okay. Uh, So they, uh, they sent in a rescue train. Uh, from the airport to to uh, hook up with the the first train that broke down, but then as it gets closer, turns out that the the problem was not with the train but with the overhead power system. So the second train, the rescue train, comes to a stop because it's lost power. So now we have two trains with about a hundred hundred and twenty people on each one. The rescue train had people in it too. Yes, okay. exactly. And so this whole process slows everything down. We never thought at any point during this whole emergency that it was going to take as long as it did. 
That is Denver Transit Partners General Manager Ann Herzenberg. Um, so then after these two trains are stuck, they send a third train, a, the second rescue train, um, to hook up with one of these stuck trains. And that didn't work. So this whole thing, uh, you know, bogs down and takes even more time. With 2020 hindsight, uh, I could say that we shouldn't have attempted to couple those trains up. We should have simply brought in the rescue train. We could have evacuated the passengers onto the rescue train without coupling, and that we would have been out of this. Okay. The big question, of course, is how can this be prevented in the future? Did she address that? Yes. So they're going to they're going to amp up training. They're going to focus on critical thinking um, and decision making. uh, And they're adjusting emergency response procedures. So uh, now they say instead of trying to uh, go in and take care of the train, the first uh, priority will be to um, will be to take care of the people. So you bring a train in, get the people off it. You don't even try to fix it to begin with. You just make sure that people aren't stuck there for hours. Was RTD buying this? Well, uh, it's it's notable that this is the most critical RTD has ever been of its partner in public. They've been in, uh, you know, they, they joined up, I think, eight years ago now. Uh, and they've mostly, you know, sort of been playing on the same team since that. So for them to come out this and be this critical is, is certainly worth noting. Um, that said, both sides recognize they need to be friends. They're in a decades-long contract here. So, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't hammer the other side too much when you have to work with them until 2040, 2050-something. Um, that said, board member Charles Sisk did put the company on notice. I'm not willing to say these are lessons learned. I'm saying it, it can't happen again, again. First time, shame on me. Second time, shame on you. What in reality could that mean? So under circum, excuse me, certain circumstances, RTD could walk away from the deal. They could. But the agency tells me there's no, they're not considering that at all. More likely is that RTD will just penalize the company by withholding payments. Um, also, RTD says they're going to step up their oversight of this private company, Denver Transit Partners. Okay, before we go, a fundamental question. Is the train between Denver Union Station and DIA reliable? That is the question, right? The, the company, Denver Transit Partners, says their on-time performance is over 95%. And that's, that's really, really good. Uh, but with all these big failures, um, you know, especially the first year after it opened and now with this one, its reputation is not great. And I think that's why RTD pulled this company out into public um, just so they would feel the heat, too. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome, Ryan. CPR's Nathaniel Miner with the latest on RTD's beleaguered A-Train. The most recent attempts to combat Colorado's opioid epidemic came from state lawmakers who passed several bills this session. CPR health reporter John Daly outlines one effort that's gotten a lot of attention from doctors. He talked with my colleague Nathan Heffel. John, lawmakers passed a measure awaiting the governor's signature that sets a limit on how much opioid medication a doctor can prescribe in specific situations. That's right, Nathan. It restricts the number of opioid pills a healthcare practitioner may prescribe, and that includes doctors, nurses, and dentists. This limits it to a seven day supply on initial prescription and a refill for a seven-day supply, with some medical exceptions based on a patient's condition and need. So the thinking is this would limit the number of painkillers a patient gets after, say, a visit to the ER or dental surgery. 
Exactly. Dr. Shannon Jantz is with the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians. She notes opioids are primarily prescribed by primary care or emergency department providers. This targets prescriptions for acute pain, which may be more sharp and severe, but short term. If we can be judicious at the upfront, um, we can hopefully really minimize the number of people that end up either addicted or on these medicines long term that maybe really shouldn't be on them. We know most opioid addictions start with leftover pills. This is about limiting that part of the opioid crisis. Now, is there research backing up this new legislation? Well, supporters point to various studies. One found opioid dependency could develop just a few days after initial use. Dr. Jant says another study from last year showed patients given more opioids with an initial prescription were more likely to develop an addiction. We do have some data really saying that if we are better about on initial prescribing, prescribing less, prescribing more thoughtfully, that we are less likely to create people who are long-term users. Is there a divide among doctors and other prescribers on this? Absolutely. Some doctors aren't happy with this legislation. I spoke with Dr. Christopher Unrein, a past president of the Colorado Medical Society, who has a lot of experience with hospice care. Unrein worries this legislation will be precedent-setting. I'm against this because uh, I believe in the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship as foundational to the practice of medicine and the decision-making that would follow that. Unrind says doctors should be able to decide what's right for a patient using their knowledge and education. He worries about the intrusion of outside forces on medical practice. Where does it stop? When we start regulating and legislating, micromanaging the practice of medicine in the legislator, where does it stop? Supporters say the seven-day limit applies just to initial prescribing for acute pain, not for chronic pain or cancer-related pain. The measure will sunset in 2021. Advocates say the opioid epidemic is so severe, something must be done to clamp down on the supply. What else does this legislation do to assess the more general use of opioids in the state? There will be a report card set up through the state's prescription drug monitoring program so doctors can see how they're doing compared to their peers. In an interesting wrinkle, trial attorneys wanted to get access to that data. But Robert Valak, who heads a state consortium on drug abuse prevention, says eventually they worked out a compromise. My understanding is, you know, the, the Trial Lawyers Association and the Medical Society, and they got together basically and decided how to write protections for doctors that would be acceptable to both sides so that neither one would oppose the legislation. There were six major opioid-related bills this session. How'd they do? Five of the six passed. The others have to do with prevention, treatment, insurance coverage, and expanding the pipeline of providers. Taken as a whole, this is the most comprehensive package Colorado lawmakers have passed. Still, there's a long way to go to tackle this enormous issue. Thanks, John. You bet. That is CPR health reporter John Daly speaking with Nathan Heffel about legislation from Colorado lawmakers to scale back the number of painkillers prescribed to patients. There's a myth Latreya Graham hopes to dispel, that African-Americans dislike the outdoors. Graham, a journalist who lives in South Carolina, wrote a piece for Outside magazine called We're Here, You Just Don't See Us. She joins us from her home. Latreya, welcome to the program. Hi, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what do you mean when you say we're here, you just don't see us? I say that speaking to the data. Um, There was a piece in 
or a survey in 2011 done by the National Park Service that said 70% of African Americans or 7% of the visitors to um, national parks were African American. Um, but when we look at a larger um, set of statistics, we find that that's not necessarily true. We are in the outdoors. We just may not be in what's considered the crown jewels, the national parks. A lot of us recreate on private land, um, in private campgrounds. We spend times at lakes and we're in state parks, but those are not being measured or quantified in the same way as the survey from 2011 um, is. So it's just that we exist in this space, you, but people don't know where to look for us in order to count us. So the survey showed just 7% visits by African-Americans to, as you say, the, the crown jewels. Are, are there reasons historically that African-Americans uh, might avoid national parks? There are sort of multi-pronged reasons that African-Americans aren't necessarily in national parks. And speaking from my own experience, it's the fact that there are fewer national parks where I live. The closest is the Great Smoky Mountains. And growing up, my parents didn't have a lot of recreational time to go five or six hours in terms of a drive, you know, spend a couple of hours there and drive back. Um, the next one um, nearest by is the Everglades, which is almost 12 hours away. So it would take more, you know, over overnight planning. And there were a number of barriers um, to going to things like that. And there are also fewer um, national parks in the American South. Um, there are quite a few more out West because of our country's history, but 55% um, of African-Americans, according to the last census, live in the South. Um, and there are just not as many um, located in the region. You also write in your piece for Outside that there is a history here that might lead some to feel fearful in national parks. Say more about that. Uh, yes. So there was a history, just like in most of American history, the history um, during Reconstruction with Jim Crow laws and then later enforced segregation. Um, and even after segregation was ended, these um, domestic laws that either explicitly forbid African-Americans and other people of color from being in spaces like national parks, there were areas um, restrooms that were for white women only, and they would have signs saying that. They would have signs, you know, on picnic grounds saying no Negroes. So it was very explicit that they didn't want people of color in these spaces. Um, and even Theodore Roosevelt, one of the champions of national parks, was also known as the, fa the father of eugenics, or the idea that people of color, African-American people, uh, were of a lower class, they were less smart, and that was a genetic based things. National parks in many ways were created for um, upper class white people um, during that time to get away from crowded, what were seen as dirty um, urban areas where there were um, a significant amount of African-Americans and or immigrants. So there's this long history that we're having to combat now um, with what national parks were created for, who was removed in order to create them, um, and the threatening situations that people of color found themselves in when they wanted to utilize those spaces. And do you think that reverberates today? In other words, someone might hear that and say, well, that's history. That's not today. But are there ways in which that reverberates, that people have a sense, uh, perhaps in the African-American community, national parks aren't for me even today? 
I think it does because I'm only one generation removed from it. I wrote in the piece about my father and he was born in 1951. So under segregation um, and the ways that it influenced how he reacted when we went camping and like who, what was safe and who was around. I think also this history of segregation gives us a knowledge barrier. We don't um, as people of color necessarily know what all is out there that it's changed a little bit with the internet, but when you're taking people generationally, like your parents out, you know, or, or it's their, um, their desire to go out, how they find that information, how they engage with it. But we were taught for, for many years that the woods weren't necessarily safe. And I'm thinking about a lot of the racial terror and lynching. And these happened even into the fifties and sixties that kept inputting the idea that, um, you know, the woods were not a safe place to be, or mm. perhaps even, you know, we don't have to, to be in the woods or be rural agricultural people anymore. We can be doctors, we can be lawyers and removing ourselves from that understanding of the land also distances us a bit from the pain that came with it. But I think in doing that, sometimes you forget who you, who you are or your heritage. I'll, I'll use that word, your heritage, your culture, some of the struggles that, that your family goes through, but it really did. Um, it did. I could see how it affected him and the way he engaged with people when we were in those spaces. How did you develop your passion for the outdoors? So uh, my dad loved the outdoors. I'm a fifth generation African-American farmer here in South Carolina. Um, and it was it was life uh, for him. And I really understood uh, the land through stories. And my father was a fabulous storyteller and now I'm a storyteller. So there was something about that grain and the undertow of that. Um, my parents put me and Girl Scouts and my brother and Boy Scouts and we started camping that way. And I learned a lot about color um, and about climate and environment. And that always continued to intrigue me. Um, and I, I loved food. I loved farming and growing things and trying new experiments, um, and seeing what I could, could cook and create. Um, and then when I grew up and went to Dartmouth, they have a huge outdoor, um, program there, um, the first and second grant. And I really got to learn more about, um, geography and environment on a scientific level, um, and participate in more, you know, more camping, learning about cabins, kayaking, and all of those other things that were not necessarily readily available to me in the South. And it just, it grew from there. I realized that I developed as a person um, mm. every time I went out and tried something new. And so I kept doing that. You know, the, the push for diversity in the outdoors is challenged in a number of ways. I mean, you've talked about uh, the challenge of access You've talked about the fraught history, but there's also the cost of entry, especially when magazines promote, you know, first mountain bikes for $5,000 or $500 backpacks, $1,000 tents. And uh, your piece in Outside Magazine mentions a national group called Outdoor Afro, whose tagline is where black people and nature meet. They have a Colorado chapter, and uh, the organization's founder is Rue Mapp. I wanted to play this observation from her. The challenge is that we've created a very different class of what outdoor engagement looks like that doesn't necessarily resonate with African Americans. I think the outdoor industry could do better to appeal to more African Americans and other people of color by 
examining what people are already doing and putting the variations of outdoor engagement more in the center versus only the extreme, very privileged and high athletic elements of outdoor engagement. I found that so interesting, the idea of focusing on what people are already doing. What, what do you make of that? Do, right. do you see the price tag, first off, on outdoor gear, for instance, as a, a hurdle? I do, um, partially because of the nature of what I do as a job. Um, I set aside a budget for adventuring every quarter um, and trying to figure out how to make my dollar stretch um, for all of the adventures and all the things I want to do is, you know, first and foremost, a a priority um, right up there with safety. And I understand and acknowledge what Rue is saying. And and it's very true that when you open a magazine, um, they're selling what they're selling and what they're advertising is what they're hoping to recoup their costs on. Um, And the thought is you have to have all these things to be an expert or to be outdoors. Um, But I think she's right. A lot of my family members do day trips and things of that nature. And so marketing, you know, a cooler that keeps things cold for a week or, you know, three or four days is not necessarily what we're looking for. Having that that entry level gear and helping people understand them, you know, that's how they climb to that more expensive gear. If they're really into something is also incredibly important. And I think she makes an important met, um, note for retailers to acknowledge and, and really understand in their marketing and what they, they start to put out. What, what do you think would move the needle, particularly on getting people of color into, as, as you said, the, the crown jewels of this country's, you know, national park system? Um, some of it, and some of it, I think we have to acknowledge is already happening. The National Park Survey that we talked about was in 2011. Um, and they're starting to do some of this acknowledgement of um, other people's histories in these parks. Um, I know out west, um, the Buffalo Soldiers were some of the first National Park Rangers, and they're honoring that story and the Harriet Tubman trail that is happening Mm. along the East coast and, and all of that is really integrating some of these stories and they're making it into the media and people are following um, the treks of people that are doing it either via articles or social media. So they're starting to do some of that, but more of it really delving into the history. And this is not just for African-Americans, but Latinx people and um, indigenous people um, and Asian Americans and their influence on this country and, their stories. If we look at um, New New American Media's Next 100 Coalition survey that they did in 2016, 95% of the people of color that they surveyed are advocating for new memorials and new parks telling um, these parts, these other parts of history or a more diverse perspective on history. And so I think it's going to take seeing some of that show up um, seeing people now we have Instagram starting to see some of these people of color that are influencers and having fo- that have followers, you know, really going into these parks and engaging and talking about their stories and what worked for them, what didn't, making sure that people understand that aspect of it. And it is going to take time for that needle to move. You know, we had 400 years of um, transatlantic slave trade, Jim Crow laws, and reconstruction and segregation 
and everything that's happening now. So the idea of taking a generation or 20 years is only one twentieth of the time we've had. So it is going to take time for that needle to move in addition to seeing these faces out there. She is Latreya Graham joining us from South Carolina, her home there. And she wrote a piece for Outside called We're Here, You Just Don't See Us, about the connection African-Americans have to the outdoors. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is what you hear if you visit Mission Wolf outside West Cliff. That's in southern Colorado. It's home to about 28 wolves and wolf dogs. There's an important difference there. CPR's Rachel Ramberg visited the sanctuary and made a really cool video about it that you can see at CPR.org. And she's here to tell us about her visit. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Describe this place. So Mission Wolf is kind of tucked up in these hills in the forest, and it overlooks the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, which is really beautiful. It takes some really long, winding dirt roads to get up there. Um, I actually got myself and my colleague lost. But we made it there. And pulling up to Mission Wolf, I got to see my first wolf. And it was just kind of sunbathing in the sun behind this tall double gate fence. That was a pretty incredible experience to see a wolf for the very first time. (laughs) I understand it was feeding day when you visited. It was feeding day. And so two days out of the week, volunteers chop up these giant carcasses of, for example, elk and after we saw our first wolf, we pulled up a little further and saw all these volunteers just hacking away these giant slabs of meat in these huge buckets. Um, they feed about 300 to 400 pounds of meat during a feeding day. My goodness. Can you pet the wolves and wolf dogs? And we'll talk about the difference between those in a bit. I imagine you don't want to pet them necessarily when they're eating. But uh, in general, do you have access to these animals? Yeah. So uh, visitors on the tour can go and meet and pet the wolves. This all occurs before feeding time. You can pet them, but under special supervision. So before you go in the enclosure, Kent kind of gives you the rundown of what to expect and what you need to do. Because this is Kent Weber, who runs the place. Yes. And uh, wolves and dogs, you have to remember, have very different behavior. Uh, a wolf... And a wolf dog are not lap dogs. And so they'll only come up and say hi to you if they want to. They're actually pretty shy and timid creatures. So they kind of stay their distance at first and are very curious. And the things you kind of have to follow is not making direct eye contact with them. You kind of have to walk in there like you're the alpha male. And you can pet them. But they, you know, you pet them on their back rather than if you were to grab like a golden retriever and pet it like by behind its ears or like grab its face. And so within the enclosure that visitors go into, they have their wolf ambassadors, which is Abraham, Zeb and Nashira. Well, how did this place, Mission Wolf in southern Colorado, get started? Kent and his wife, Tracy Brooks, built Mission Wolf in 1986, and they put the land in the wolves' names in 1988. But it all started when Kent actually rescued a captive wolf. I came across a wolf in a cage back in the early 80s, thought that was disgusting. You can't turn a wolf in captivity loose. They're imprinted to humans. And I got licensed in 1984 to take care of a pure wolf, And everybody I met was either horrified and wanted to kill them, or they thought they were so cute they wanted to buy one. 
So these are wolves that have been in captivity and can't be released to the wild. Yes, that's correct. What, what did you mean when you said, Rachel, that the land is in the wolf's name? Um, like it belongs like it, it belongs for, to the wolves. Forever it has to be theirs. Yes. Fascinating. What is the need for this place? T- talk more about that. So uh, as we were just talking about with captive wolves, there's about a quarter million captive wolves living in cages today. And there's only about 10,000 wolves living in the wild. Oh, many more in captivity than the wild. Yes. And so Kent Weber's mission is to educate people on a very misunderstood animal. I mean, you can think back to your childhood uh, books with Little Red Riding Hood or The Three Little Pigs. And a lot of people fear wolves as kind of a bad guy. Kent actually went to Mr. Rogers in 1990 to go on his show and have Mr. Rogers meet a wolf for himself. Yoga, I want you to meet Mr. Rogers. Hello. <laughs> this is Little Dancing Bear. Hello, Little Dancing Bear. <laughs> and this Hi. is Kent Weber. I'm glad to meet you. His friend. Nice to meet you. Shaman. Hi, Shaman. It's a shaman. And shaman's a Rocky Mountain timber wolf. He's a very unusual wolf in that he's not so afraid of people, he'll actually come meet people. Well, I wondered. I, I didn't think that wolves could visit people. Now, to this difference between a wolf... Again, these are wolves that have been in captivity and can't be released in the wild. And a wolf dog. What's a wolf dog exactly? So a wolf dog is a hybrid or a cross when a wolf and a dog have been bred together. And you have to keep in mind that a pure wolf has wild behavior and a dog is the opposite side of the spectrum with a domesticated behavior. So this is some blend in between that's not totally wild, but not totally like a house pet. Exactly. So when you take opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of behavior and combine that into one body of an animal, you get a pretty confused and conflicted animal (laughs) or pet. So is it that people might have a wolf dog at home, and then they realize this is just not a, an animal I can take care of? Absolutely. So what people don't realize is that wolf behavior takes about two to three years to mature. So they kind of see only the puppy side at first, and then later down the road, they see the wild animal instincts take in. Fascinating. So you might have a wolf or a wolf dog and think all is well, at least for a while. So for two years, people can have this wolf puppy in their house, and it's a great dog, and it acts like the kids and it plays. But when that wolf turns from two to three, it's like an adult going from 15 to 21. Don't tell me what to do. So he must have wolves and wolf dogs that have been, what, surrendered by people. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the pure wolves or captive wolves came in from places like zoos or wildlife parks where they just didn't have the room for them anymore. Mm -hmm. And the wolf dogs actually come from private owners where people have taken them in as a pet and then due to lack of resources in land, money, and time, they have to surrender them. So there's this duality in a wolf dog, and that is borne out to some extent in how these animals are managed. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is regulated to manage one thing, wild wolves. Animal shelters manage domestic animals. So if an animal shelter gets in a part wild animal, they can't take it. They have to euthanize it. If the wild animal managers take in a part domestic animal, they can't accept it. It's not a wild animal. The wolf dog is the only species 
that falls in this gray area. Not fully wolf, not fully dog. Well, Rachel, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. You're welcome. CPR's videography fellow Rachel Ramberg on her visit to Mission Wolf, a sanctuary in southern Colorado. You can see her video about the place at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with a new detective character. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There are some well-known female sleuths in fiction. Miss Marple, Kinsey Milhone, heck, even Jessica Fletcher. It's no small task to create a character who can live up to the likes of those three. Enter Celine Watkins. She's a very elegant private investigator, according to Denver author Peter Heller. His suspense novel, Celine, is in the running for a 2018 Colorado Book Award. Celine is based on someone you know, But before I have you reveal who, describe this character for us, because she's larger than life. In fact, I think of her as like the most interesting woman in the world. (laughs) Well, uh, she's very elegant. She was born in Paris uh, just before the war. Her dad was a banker in Morgan's over there. His name was Harry Watkins. And... um, The Germans were coming, so she and her two sisters and her mother fled a couple of months before they marched on Paris. And she arrived in Manhattan, and all she wanted to do at age seven was be in the French resistance. She would go around Manhattan listening to groups of people trying to decide who was a Nazi spy. And she grew up. She went to college. She got out, got married early, had kids, and... So that kind of squelched her ambition maybe to be in the CIA or to be James Bond, which is what she really wanted to do. But she began working for a detective agency as a homemaker and then got her PI license. And almost immediately after getting her license, the FBI contacted her. She was that good. She was as that a good. private investigator. And she is able to move in highly... Uh, sort of edified circles. Right. Uh, The reason the FBI contacted her is because they didn't have an agent who could, they wanted to catch a guy who had perpetrated a rather large fraud on the Bank of New York, and they didn't, they thought he was somewhere in southern Connecticut around Old Greenwich where his family lived, and they didn't have an agent who could mingle with a silk stocking set over there, and so they contacted Celine, who went up there in her old Volvo. And uh, you might want to reveal who she is. Let's do that now. So she, she's sometimes called the Prada P.I. And the reason the backstory of this character is so thorough is because she's based on someone in your life. Who, who is it? Right. So Celine is my mom. And my mom died two and a half years ago. I was devastated. I was very close to her. And I think I wrote the novel just so I could hang out with her for another year. Oh. So the, the, the FBI story is true. They contacted her. She made us some calls. She found out that, like, this guy's aunt played tennis with her aunt in Woodstock or something in Vermont. She figured out where he might be. She drove up there. She spied on this guy with her opera glasses. This is, this is true. He came out of his horse property. You got to picture white rail fences, big old clabbered house. He got into his little sports coupe, and mom followed him. 
And they had a high-speed car chase in the environs of Darien, Connecticut. And I imagine it was probably 40 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> not on two wheels. But finally the guy, he, he was so intrigued. It's like, who is this little woman who can barely see over the steering wheel? Uh, why is she following me? So he pulled over. She walked up, click, 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 her pumps on the pavement. She said, Franklin, what you're doing is wrong. And it's not good for your family. It's not good for you. It's not decent. And we've got to make this right. So what we're going to do is I'm going to follow you back to your house. And then you'll get in my car and we'll drive back down to the Bank of New York and we'll settle this thing. And he did. Her powers of her, her, her. Her moral authority was so persuasive that the guy did it, and it's something that I ran into a lot growing up. <laughs> Indeed, your mother, and thus the character of Celine in your new novel, Peter Heller, has this amazing knack to just confront bad guys and disarm them with her words. And Celine in this book is in her late 60s into her early 70s. And so I suppose there's there's something about her that might be disarming. She was, uh, both Celine in the book and my mother, um, always met people right where they were. She, she never, she could talk to, what she, what she found out was after they put the cuffs on this guy, the special agents at the Bank of New York, she said she never wanted to see that face again. It was so sad. So she decided not to do perp work. What she and her husband ended up focusing on was finding missing people and reuniting birth families. Like if you were a 15-year-old girl, you had a baby, it was taken by the state. 20 years later, either the mother or the child wanted to find each other. That's what they did. It was cold cases, often with sealed records, and they were crack investigators. They had like a 96% find rate, and they reunited over 100 birth families. And they did it pro bono for people that couldn't afford an investigator. And so mom could, Anseline could, you know, talk to homeless people, to addicts, never patronized, always, you know, met people right where they were. And it was disarming. I mean, they had county clerks with sealed records that would meet my mother instantly in the bathroom and hand files under, you know, between stalls, you know, just because she was persuasive. Them. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's fascinating how blended Celine is and your mother is, the character and, and your mom. And it makes me wonder if, if this is really a novel or if it's right. more of a biography of a very yeah. interesting woman who happened to raise you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I could have written a memoir, but, you know, the bi but novel's way more fun. I mean, I could conflate stories, um, you know, things that happened to her sisters, you know, I made happen to her in the novel. <clears throat> I can embellish. But there was so much about my mother that you didn't need to embellish. She was a wonderful artist and she used a lot of skulls and bones and <clears throat> her art was displayed throughout her loft on the right on the dock by the Brooklyn Bridge is where she lived. And the window washer became so fascinated with her art that, one, that he came back two days later with a skull in a bucket. And yeah. he said, uh, Mrs. Hella, don't ask. I put that in the book. You know, it's like, so she quickly covered it in gold leaf and it stands on a pedestal looking elegant by the door. And she could shoot. My, my mother was a crack shot. Uh, she would disappear for weeks at a time. So I don't really know exactly what all she did, but... Things would reveal themselves. We were driving in Idaho. We had we had said goodbye to her sister who was dying of cancer. We were both very sad. We weren't talking much. We were driving through Haley, Idaho, and Mom said, "Hey, Pete, pull over, will you?" And it it was a it was a building that said Dick's Guns. 
and she walks in. Okay, you got to pump, you know, clack, clack, clack at the pumps. This guy's cleaning a handgun on the back counter. He's in coveralls and he's kind of watching her. She leans over the counter, starts looking at these handguns. Her bracelet's like clicking on the glass. And she said, can I, can I see that one? It was like this honking big Colt 45. And he said, a gift, right? And he said, no, uh, it's for me. <laughs> and he said, well, you might want to start with something a little smaller, like these 22s over there. And she said, no, I'd like to try this. So she picked it up. She made a stance. I could see the guy's thoughts. He was like, hmm, she must watch a lot of cop shows. <laughs> Pretty good. And then he was so intrigued. He was like, let's go shoot this thing. I'm about to close. We get in his Bronco, go up to this gully above Haley, Idaho. He sets up a log with a bunch of cans of bottles, like seven of them. He's very patronizing, showing her how to rack the gun. She's very patient. I was just watching all this. And she just picked up the gun and went, bam, 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 bam. And every bottle and can just, you know, shattered, you know, flew in the air. She was a good shot. She was, yeah. And again, this is the basis for Celine in your new novel. And uh, at the heart of this is a disappearance. Right. So someone comes knocking on her door, uh, desperate to find her father, who may either be dead or just missing. Right. And, and this brings her out west where the this man has disappeared. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what brings Celine West. Right. So this this young woman's father disappeared over 20 years before. He was a na- famous National Geographic photographer. He was doing a story on grizzly bears in Yellowstone, and he disappears. And all evidence points to a bear mauling. But to this young woman, things don't add up. And so she finds out about Celine, contacts her, and asks if she would help find her father. So Celine heads west with her Watson, Pete, who's a seventh-generation Maine Islander where, you know, reticence is like the state bird. He doesn't say much. They call him the quiet American in the family. And uh, they're, they're sort of like good cop, bad cop. They're kind of like the cop that talks and the one that doesn't. <laughs> they borrow uh, Celine's son's camper and they head up to Yellowstone. And, uh, and then it just gets pretty much um, – You know, it's a page turner from there on. (laughs) In in the background of this story is 9-11. Right. And and the attacks of that period. Why is that in the backdrop? Well, I think Celine is dealing. I mean, the book ends up being, I mean, it's a really fun mystery, sure, you know, but it ends up really being about broken families, about uh, daughters looking for their fathers, about mothers looking for their children. It's about loss. It's about making meaning, you know, with uh, a lot of loss. And so I think setting it, you know, right after 9-11 was a way to sort of set the story in a context of a greater loss of a country uh, dealing with its grief uh, the way she is. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And my guest is Denver novelist Peter Heller. You might know him from The Painter, The Dog Stars. His latest is called Celine, and it's a suspense novel whose main character, Celine, is based on his mother, who in real life was a private investigator. How do you think she would feel about the book? Um, It it strikes me that your mom was probably a pretty opinionated person. (laughs) She was, uh, she definitely had ideas of what ought and not, and uh, what not to be done. Uh, She um, would have been so tickled. You know, I sent the manuscript to her husband, Pete, who was her partner in all investigation. And who is the partner of Celine in this novel. Yeah. And as I said, he's this old Mainer. He's like 86 years old. I sent him the manuscript. He never says much. So I I get this call like two days later. He's like, I read the book. Long pause. I'm like, okay. I have two criticisms. Okay. 
you know, one, she would have never gone out to meet the assassin in her bathrobe with her cup of coffee and the Glock in the shoulder holster uh, without putting on full face. (laughs) And I had her just dashing on some lipstick, you know. And then he said, you know, the second thing is she never took my arm. We always held hands. I thought that was so romantic. This case brings Celine out west, as we said. And when she arrives in Denver, she meets up with her son. Right. I have to wonder if that's you. <laughs> so your, your mom is in this book. Is Peter Heller in this book as well? Well, he lives on a lake on the west side of town, just like I do. He, he kind of um, looks like me. His wife is named Kim, as my wife is. Uh, so I guess I didn't try and disguise him too much. But, you know, I, I probably won't sue myself. So I think I'm all right. Okay, so I'm going to say that there's a lot of Peter Heller in this book, in addition to his mom. You said that this was, in some ways, uh, how you could spend time with her um, after her death. You also said that this book is about grief. Was it a healing process to write the book? Did it help you with your grief? It was so wonderful, yeah. I mean, mean, it really, you know, when I write, um, I get completely transported. And, you know, I'll be sitting in the coffee shop and I'll start, I'll laugh out loud and People probably think I'm crazy or I'll have, you know, tears like dripping off my chin under the under the table. And I, I know people in the coffee shop are thinking that poor son of a gun, you know, he's probably going through a bad divorce or whatever. But I, I get completely uh, transported and completely enthralled in the work. And so I really felt like I was with her for for the better part of a year, which was so wonderful. And one thing I discovered was that the animus that drove her life and her sort of MO was that she was just having a ton of fun. That's what I realized when I was mm-hmm. writing the book. She was doing really hard work. She was doing important work for people. You know, that it was very, very important to these her clients that these people find their family. It, it, it could make someone whole again, a feeling of wholeness. There, there can be, when you get separated at birth from birth parents or birth children, there can be a huge aching vacuum. And she was really about healing that and, and giving people families. And so, you know, I think her work was, was, was really important. That's what it was about. But she also had just such a great time. I mean, she could she could put on disguises once she went to a diplomat's party disguised as a man. Uh, you know, I mean, she had a lot of investigative skills. Very briefly, in about the last 30 yeah. seconds, is this a character you want to revisit? I mean, she, she really does seem cinematic. I don't see how I can stay away from her. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe every other novel. Thanks so much for being with us. It's so great. Thank you, Ryan. He has one of my favorite laughs. That's Denver author Peter Heller, and he has written the suspense novel Celine, based on his mother. It's up for a 2018 Colorado Book Award. We spoke last year. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Special thanks to Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, and Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR.